LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host, Greg Moffat, and my guest today is Brian Keating, author of Losing the Nobel Prize, a story of cosmology, ambition, and the perils of science's highest honor, who joins us to discuss the origin of the universe and how science is performed, presented, and perceived. Modern science portrays itself as dispassionate and detached, with objective observers simply registering facts. But scientists are people too, with prejudices and emotions, rivalries and ambitions, hopes and fears. Pop science today is all over the media, making stars out of scientists unaccustomed to such a claim. In an age of chaos and confusion where anti-scientific attitudes are also on the rise, can more be done to make science relevant and meaningful to the masses? We also take a tour of cosmological theories, from the Big Bang to the steady state, and ask, could our universe really have arisen from nothing? And in attempting to trace its origin back in time, is there a point beyond which we simply cannot see? Hello and welcome, Brian, and thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be with you, Greg. Today, Brian, we're going to be talking about your new book, your first book, in fact, uh, Losing the Nobel Prize, A Story of Cosmology, Ambition and the Perils of science's highest honor. Before we dive into that, just tell listeners a little bit about your background and your work in general. So yeah, I am an astrophysicist, um, an astronomer, uh, which means I uh, I study the uh, movement of the stars and the zodiac symbols. No, I don't do that. Um, I usually say I'm either an astronomer and people confuse me with an astrologer or I'm a cosmologist and people confuse me with a cosmetologist. But I actually build instruments with my group and my team of students and postdocs that sense invisible light radiation produced from the Big Bang and very distant galaxies and exotic objects in the cosmos. And I use those, along with these brilliant men and women that work with me, to really divine information about the earliest epochs in the universe, which may yield information about what will happen in the very, very deep, distant future, and also, perhaps more provocatively, uh, explain phenomenon that may have existed before our Big Bang. So I hope we can talk about some of these issues today. Absolutely, we definitely can. I want to ask you just on a personal note, what time in your life that the heavens kind of really gripped your imagination? I think mm-hmm. for many people, it, it is in childhood, and it certainly was for me. And we're of a similar age. We're the same generation, basically. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was I was interested in science fiction uh, as a child, and that inevitably led to thinking about, well, what of, if any of this could be real in terms of, you know, space exploration and extraterrestrial life? And my formative experience was 
Um, I'm sure you're aware of the show, but there was it was the longest running show on British television, The Sky at Night. Yes. With uh, Patrick Moore for many years with a, an ensemble cast of guests. But I used to slavishly watch that. And it, quite appropriately, it started at midnight. You know, they, they had the graveyard <laughs> shift for that one. But so that, that was what really I, I, that I was weaned on. So I don't know what your formative experiences in this area were. Yeah. Um, for me, it was really an encounter with, uh, with the stars and the planets um, that was completely serendipitous that uh, launched my fascination with the night sky. And then later on, and only later when I had the chance to do some research in the nascent, you know, pre-internet years in the 1980s, um, you know, it was all manual in libraries and in newspapers, daily printed, you know, pieces of dead trees, that I was able to learn that the objects that I was seeing in the sky and was so transfixed by were actually planets. And and, uh, eventually I saw the moons of Jupiter through a tiny telescope and kind of un- unknowingly repeated the observations of my hero, Galileo Galilei, in 1610, just about uh, 409 years ago tonight, in, in January of, of, 20, uh, of uh, 1610, Galileo turned a tiny little telescope, the kind you can buy at an electronics store or you know, online, a couple-inch di- diameter refracting telescope to the heavens and looked at phenomena that no human being had ever seen before. And I did the same thing, you know, 400 years later, and that was really hooked me. And then, as I said, I I had a, there was no internet, as you and I know, no Google, you know, we didn't want to, I didn't want to wait 14 years for the invention of Google. So I had to use newspapers. And when I did find out after, you know, that I think is the first scientific research I ever did is, is really to investigate what was this bright object I thought was a star or an airplane. It turned out to be the planet Jupiter which I then discovered had moons. And that was just the most fascinating thing, to do research, to have kind of a hypothesis that's totally wrong, you know, that it was a star, uh, and then look at it through a telescope, through astronomical instrumentation, and be able to re- reject my hypothesis, prove myself wrong, and then uh, and then learn more and more about it. That's really what set me on my path. And only later did I realize there were people like you in the world and other people that are curious about the sky and uh, um, and and so I learned as much as I could about them. But it was really for me through science nonfiction works of uh, science fiction authors, Isaac Asimov, um, Carl Sagan. These authors really deeply influenced me to learn more about what would become my eventual profession uh, of an astronomer. Well, there's a great deal in your book because it's quite um, – it, it weaves and, and ducks among – um, you, you know, your life story with the, the story of other colleagues and just uh, cosmology in general, all different dimensions of science from scientists and the, and the public as well. And not, not least of which in the story is the Nobel Prize, which I mean, almost everyone yeah. will be familiar with. Well, we may not even have time to get to the ins and outs of that. But right. what, what I do want to draw out are two main threads, which is cosmology itself, you know, origin theories. Where, why are we here? Where did the, all this come from? How did the universe come into being? Mm-hmm. And then also parallel to that, the issue of how science itself is done, how it's performed, how it's presented, how it's perceived, because you talk about this a great deal as well. So perhaps you could say something, well, we'll deal with the, the former first. Uh, perhaps you could just say something about the work that you've been, the projects you've been involved with. And I know this is a big question, but over the arc of your career so far, what you feel that you've learned about origin theories of the universe and if you have 
currently have a favoured one. And this is, <laughs> that's very much a question from a layman's point of view, but most, yeah. most people listening to this are not going to be experts in your field. Yeah, of course. So through my lifetime, uh, you know, or in our mid forties, say the two of us, I've seen the, you know, complete, uh, you know, 180 degree turns in the field of cosmology, namely from people, you know, seriously still thinking about the universe as potentially having lasted forever in some sense. And what's known as a quasi steady state cosmology, a, a universe that, uh, features an everlasting cycle of collapses, big crunches followed by big bangs, um, to the near dominance and unrivaled success of the Big Bang Theory. I've seen a television show in America called The Big Bang Theory become the most popular show on all of U.S. television, uh, and and just things that I never would have dreamed of uh, that that have truly revolutionized our understanding not only of the physics of the early universe, but also on how it impacts um, ordinary lay people, such as your listeners, and that the origin of the universe is something that people have always been fascinated about throughout human history and our place within it and trying to understand it first qualitatively. The, the notion, you know, is the universe finite in time and space? Is it infinite in time and in space? Those are very deep questions that, that, uh, you know, have impacts on, you know, maybe not our daily lives, but perhaps on the deeper, more meaningful, uh, impact on our live, lifetimes as a whole, namely what it means to be a human being. So you asked about my favorite, perhaps cosmological models. I like the fact that, um, we, we know what we don't know. In other words, we know that we don't know exactly what happened at the beginning of the universe. And it may be that the universe still has features that are, even though the Big Bang is very solidly known uh, paradigm in physics, how it how the universe has evolved. It only takes us back, only in air quotes that you can't see, but it only takes us back to about three minutes after the Big Bang itself. So some people claim the Big Bang was the origin of time itself. In fact, Stephen Hawking, the late great Stephen Hawking, used to say that you couldn't ask what happened before the Big Bang, and that would be like asking what is north of the North Pole. Uh, a question is meaningless. That's where the time originated. And nowadays, we actually feel like that question is a very sensible one. Uh, and in fact, you know, uh, unfortunately, Stephen never lived long enough to see the results of the experiments that my colleagues and I will hopefully be producing in the next few years, which is to shed light, no pun intended, on whether or not the universe began at a single instant. And that theory is very tightly connected to the concept, which is an extension of what Copernicus conjectured 500 years ago, which was that the Earth was just an ordinary planet similar to all the other planets in our solar system at that time, the other, you know, five other objects, <clears throat> including the moon. Uh, or was it somehow unique? And now we've extended that through the work of astronomers like uh, William Herschel and then eventually Hubble. And, uh, and beyond, we've extended it to now know that we're not only not the only planet, we're not the only star, we're not the only solar system, we're not the only planetary system in our galaxy, we're not the only galaxy in the observable universe. Uh, there are hundreds of billions of other galaxies, each with hundreds of billions of stars. Now, the most exciting and vexing and provocative question I think is possible to ask in all of human 
science is the question of whether or not our universe is unique. Um, and those who are really taking the Copernican arguments to their logical conclusion suggest, no, we are not the only universe that exists. In other words, there may be other true island universes outside of our visible horizon, beyond our horizon that we can see with our telescopes. None of these you could see with your eyes anyway. But through telescopes, could you perceive the existence of not just another galaxy, but another universe? And so these questions delightfully turn out to be interrelated to one another. The origin of time, whether that's a unique event uh, and the cyclic nature of the universe, if that's, if that's correct, is connected in a very deep way to whether or not our universe is unique. Your book's a good primer on some of the major theories of the origin of the universe. Uh, the Big Bang, of course, is one that most people, your average guy in the street, will be vaguely aware of at least, if not fully understanding mm -hmm. it. And the quote in your book is um, that uh, many people dislike the creationist overtones of that. And I've, yeah. I've said many times in interviews that the Big Bang does sound a great deal like let there be light, you know, so you're yes. like, boom, there it is, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> not mm -hmm. quite, not quite seven days, but you know, a few minutes. But there's others that, that people won't generally be aware of, whether they've been generally discredited or, or not. Like, for example, that the steady state model associated with Fred Hoyle. Um, I always enjoyed his writing. I have to say, um, I think he, I think he was mm -hmm. on, on point with many things. Yes. Um, he's a great thinker or the idea of the universe being somehow eternal, always being there. Then you get into the cyclic, uh, nature that you mention, uh, which mm -hmm. uh, sort of breath of God I've likened it to, which is kind of inhaling and exhaling. You know, the universe expands and contracts and does that. But the, again, did that process of a beginning. And then there's multiverse and many worlds, lots and lots of different theories out there. Yes. Um, but, it seems that when, no matter what the origin theory is, that each one is somehow inadequate. And of course, we know we're finding our way here in, you know, in, in the world and the universe. Scientists are working on these things. It's a, it's a work in progress. But from the point of view of an outside observer, I quite often look at, and you do highlight this in your book, how some theories, origin theories have been treated this way by those uh, who've been promoting them, is that you get a theory and then a problem arises with that theory. So you develop ever more Baroque and Byzantine levels of complexity to explain that. And before you know it, you're just completely lost in abstraction. Absolutely pure theory, you know, like string theory, for example. Yeah. So if people, you know, have this notion that scientists are sort of, um, <clears throat> you know, free from bias and free from prejudice as to what sorts of um, models constitute actual scientific endeavors worthy of pursuit and not mythology or astrology and, uh, you know, to some people, religion even has these overtones. And even, I should say, philosophy is universally almost, uh, no pun intended, derided by many cosmologists uh, in that they don't really uh, take it very seriously, that it doesn't produce new knowledge. It's sort of a meta type of, of, of physical study as, as the original name for it used to, used to be. And so I think that it's somewhat ironic that, you know, scientists that, that pride themselves on adherence to, the, to scientism and naturalism 
that they are some of the most biased, prejudiced people. You know, I should say we are, uh, including myself, because I am certainly not free of these biases myself. So the notion that, that scientists are somehow dispassionate, walking Wikipedias that have no agendas, no prejudices, that's been one of the most um, sort of pernicious myths that I've come to bust in my book and, and in elsewhere in my conversations and videos and so forth, that, that this is... This is actually not not the true state of affairs. Um, for me, I think you know it's 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 fine to have these. It's what makes us human, after all, uh, that we do make judgments and um, you know in the scientific realm and discriminate and and uh, in the scientific realm with evidence from from non evidence or from non um, validation of ideas. And that's how science progresses. But you should do so with an awareness that you are human. And, um, and and for many of those who think that, you know, artificial intelligence will supplant human beings, I, I'm very skeptical of that. Uh, for one thing, you know, it's been shown that artificial intelligence can even have biases encoded and enhanced through the humans that are used to program it. So I think it's very fascinating to think about um, and be uh, sort of exempt from the the heat that is generated in many arguments in daily life of politics um, you know, Brexit, uh, Republicans, Democrats here in America. And I think if you can divorce yourself from those petty squabbles and really delight in the in the pursuit of knowledge, you know, for its own sake, um, that I would uh, say that that is the most the greatest privilege of being a scientist. Uh, you jumped straight to my um, second line of questioning about how science is pursued and presented and perceived. But just a couple of points before we get into that properly. As far as AI goes, well, you immediately reminded me of a concept. One of the first things I learned about IT back in the 80s, programming a BBC B computer, I seem to remember was the first one we got to. It was that of uh, Geigo, garbage in, garbage out. You know, <laughs> so where they're like, what, what's this computer doing? It's doing what you told it to do. As mm -hmm. it were, if you see what I mean. So that's worth bearing in mind as we go forward with advances in AI. I often think that... In, just in terms of our interpretation of the world in general, but particularly when it comes to the big questions about, as I said earlier, you know, where we come from and what all this means. As you say, we are just human. We have a limited intellect. It, we might like to think of ourselves as the um, apex of life on this planet, though there might be, <laughs> might be a few dolphins and whales that would argue. But <laughs> we're limited in our thinking and our imagination, and we struggle with even basic concepts like finite and infinite. If we think of it yeah. in terms of the universe, so if the universe is finite, um, and this is something that I used to think about endlessly for like entire afternoons when I was a kid. Where does it end? What's beyond that? You know, just simple questions like that. And if it's infinite, well, that, we struggle with that even more. What it has no end. You know, right. we, we get well, there's almost nothing we can imagine as being infinite. We're just it, it just seems to be an assault uh, on our intellect, on our on our our psyche, as it were. And the question, this also applies to the question of a sort of a, an origin event horizon, you know, you mentioned pre-Big Bang. Um, if that turns out to be increasingly uh, accepted as the, the most plausible um, origin theory, well then, you know, there's the whole uh, idea of the um, universe arising ex nihilo from nothing. How can something ar um, arise from nothing? And, and a lot of these questions, they're, they're, not, they're not quite semantic, but they're about the ways in which we think, the limited ways in which we think, and we think in terms of language as well. What words do we have to describe things? And that affects our imagination as well. So really sometimes the, the sort of quantum leap that we, we could perhaps sometimes need to take in terms of 
just imagining something bigger and more than we already have proves to be a, you know, a real sort of event horizon in itself for us. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So the, the thing that I find most fascinating when it comes to these big questions is this concept of, you know, the kind of finite or infinite nature of human perception. As you say, we're finite, you know, to some people we are meat computers, uh, you know, that we work at room temperature in a wet environment, uh, very unlike any other computer that you've used or I've used in my lifetime. Um, and even now as we make this great a potential leap to quantum computing, and I've done some work on uh, so-called qubits, which play the role of a you know semiconductor transistors, um, but for quantum computers, which are still in their primitive infancy, but nevertheless, uh, those aren't any closer to kind of the wet, squishy room temperature computers that our brains are. And in other words, these devices that my group make. Uh, these operate at uh, 250 millikelvin, you know, 0.25 degrees above what's known as absolute zero. Uh, very different than the temperatures even in, the, you know, the northern hemisphere in the winter, right? So, uh, or at the South Pole where my telescopes are located. So, the question of whether or not, you know, computers can really approach human consciousness or, or thought processes is a great mystery to me. And I put it up there the origin of consciousness that is with the other two big questions that comprise the three you know big bangs as i like to think about them which are you know how did the universe come to be you know from a non-universe or from a previous universe that's question number 1 without the universe there's no question number 2 which is how did life come about from non-life um, that had to happen at some point and then number 3 how did consciousness come about from non-consciousness or from just basic life and all these things are you know interrelated deeply related to each other and more than enough uh investigation or time would be spent on any one of those let alone all three of those but uh, that's what makes being a scientist so fun is you get to see these linkages between these very disparate subjects like origin of life and origin of the universe that you might not think, you know, you might think vaguely, uh, they have to do with astronomy or something like that, but they're, they turn out to be very different and yet also very similar. You mentioned uh, a few moments ago the, the fact that scientists are human, like the rest mm -hmm. of us, and they're not dispassionate observers, however much they might try to be. Uh, politics, you know, comes, comes into science the question of egos, and then there's a whole, especially in academia, grants and funding and tenure and all mm -hmm. the rest of it. The two of the questions you mentioned there, like, you know, the origin of life, the, the origin and nature of consciousness. I think a lot of lay people think that these questions have been answered. Right. I think that somewhere in a book about evolution or Darwin, life has been explained. You know, it was the primordial soup. And yes. orig origin of consciousness, well, it's an epiphenomenon of the brain. So as much as anyone thinks about these things, your average person on their way to work, on their way back from work in the supermarket, whatever, uh, these mm -hmm. things are set. They're just about as settled as the Big Bang. So, well, yeah. <laughs> actually, these things are far from settled. And yes. I, I would contend that we have no idea, scientists or otherwise, have no idea how life began, because it seems to me life cannot come from something that is either dead or has never been alive. And as for consciousness, well, my best understanding at this stage of my life is that it is not just a byproduct of the brain. Absolutely not. So research in this area has discovered, not discovered nothing, but it's it's got zero to say about the actual origin of consciousness, I would say. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's uh, so interesting. I was talking on a radio show here in America, the Dennis Prager uh, show, um, and we were talking about this famous experiment that was done here at UC San Diego. Um, and uh, one of our buildings is named after the gentleman who did it, uh, Harold Urey, who won the Nobel Prize for discovering um, uh, an isotope, which is a heavier version of the uh, of the uh, of hydrogen element. The element hydrogen has a um, an additional variant called an isotope, and that he discovered it and won the Nobel Prize in the 30s for it in chemistry. And he had this theory that you know the early Earth's atmosphere was made up of you know nitrogen and it had some phosphorus and all sorts of other things and different ratios, and then you could combine those elements um, uh, with electric static shock. And then eventually he did replicate it in a t- couple of test tubes here uh, with his student, Stanley Miller, and they produced, uh, um, they pr- produced enzymes and amino acids and all sorts of other things. And they said, look, this is just like lightning in the early Earth's atmosphere, and it could create the precursors to life. Now, of course, it's very different from creating full-fledged life or even creating DNA, uh, but it made a big splash, uh, literally, and people thought this was amazing, and this was really, and this was, I, I point out, you know, it's about 60 plus years ago now, and and I looked up recently in advance of being on this radio show, you know, what is the theory of what's called abiogenesis? So how does biology, bio, come from genesis, uh, something that's not biological? And there's um, the statement, at least in Wikipedia, which is, you know, not a scientific journal, but the statement there, if you go there, it says something to the effect of, uh, although nobody really is sure how abiogenesis takes place, all almost there's near universal agreement that it did, which is a really startling thing to think. You know, the, there's no idea, as you're saying, or very few. You know, there's a couple of pl- plausible pathways. There's all sorts of, you know, common geological and mineralogical precursors that could pr- provide the raw materials, but no one actually knows how that step took place. Furthermore, nobody knows if it's universal, literally, you know, throughout the universe that life exists. Some like Fred Hoyle that you mentioned earlier, who's a titanic intellect, uh, contributed a tremendous amount uh, to human knowledge and yet was sort of viewed as a crank, crackpot, uh, outcast scientist up until the time he died, uh, going down in history as the man who came up with the term Big Bang as a term of derision and uh, mockery of the theory that we now know and love. <clears throat> And uh, this this great intellect claimed that the origin of life was actually seeded, uh, what's called panspermia, the theory that there's life throughout the galaxy, and then eventually it was carried on meteorites, crashed into the early Earth billions of years ago, and uh, nucleated the first life forms on Earth. Of course, that just pushes the problem out of our planet, you know, to another planet somewhere else. Uh, and we have absolutely zero evidence that there's life, let alone, you know, technological life outside of the earth. So, um, but none of those are reasons not to study these things. It's just reasons to be dubious when people say the science is settled or it's generally accepted. I mean, if we didn't have uh, quantitative, detailed, uh, precise measurements in cosmology, I would be embarrassed to say things like, I believe the Big Bang took place, but I have no no real evidence for it. So I think that's a flaw in in the otherwise rational thinking process of many, many of my colleagues in science. And again, I shouldn't say only my colleagues. I, I certainly have my own share of uh of of lacunae in my own mental, you know, thinking processes. Well, it's interesting that you mention uh panspermia because 
Just recently I picked up in a second-hand store a little book by Francis Crick, co-discoverer of DNA, life itself, and mm-hmm. uh, its origin in nature. And he puts forward the theory of panspermia in there. And exactly, I remember thinking the same thing. <laughs> he starts out quite enthusiastically by saying, consider this, you know, this is how it might have happened, you know. But then as the book goes on, he's sort of highlighting, say, actually, there's massive problems with this. And any sufficiently advanced civilization elsewhere in the galaxy or the universe, they'd have to do this, they'd have to do this, this is so unlikely, this is unfeasible, the chances of this happening are, uh, you know, a billion to one. And uh, so it gets more and more unlikely as, as he works through the book. And it's kind of like <laughs> a, a less sinister version of the, the movie Prometheus, you know, by Ridley Scott, where, you know, where life is seeded on Earth from elsewhere. It's appealing on one level because it's attempting to get around this conundrum. But as you say, it just bats it off elsewhere. And it's exactly it's a bit like the pre-Big Bang thing I mentioned earlier. It's like, yeah, and I know we do have a problem with infinite regress when we're trying to think about the origins of life of the universe. Can we keep referencing these events in terms of something else because like where does it stop yeah yeah i don't either and it may be that these things like the you know i i point out in my book and elsewhere just this notion of time and how mysterious time is and you can imagine that you know even if you're willing to accept most most people think that matter is conserved so they talk about the conservation of matter um, but that's not actually a law of nature there is no law of nature that prevents matter from being created or destroyed what is conserved is energy. Uh, energy cannot be created or destroyed. Um, so then you have to think back, well, in the beginning of the universe, if the universe came from nothing, isn't that creating something from nothing, energy from non-energy? Uh, and then people get around that by saying, well, the total amount of energy in the universe is zero um, for all time. And it's just the manifestation that we perceive as positive you know, energy of say, a, you know, a, a cricket ball struck by a bat, uh, is offset somewhere by a gravitational field that's negative uh, in terms of its uh, energy associated with the ma- mass and the potential curvature of space-time. So these arguments go back and forth, but still you have to think. Well, let's say there is a singular origin of time, in comport comporting with uh, Stephen Hawking's uh, original claim in the beginning that I said that there's, you know, that was the Big Bang. It was the origin of our present universe. Uh, and you can't ask sensibly what happened before it. Uh, well, then the question is, well, does time progress at time equals zero? How did you make that, you know, little nudge uh, to distinguish moment, you know, epsilon from moment zero? And that's a very deep question. Uh, and in physics, we relate, you know, kind of the question of time to a, qu- a quantity called entropy, which is, you know, loosely described as the is the disorder or chaoticness of a, of a state of uh, a collection of particles or fields or energy and so forth. And so the question of whether or not time has an arrow, it seems to be related to the second law of thermodynamics, which suggests that en- entropy can only increase, meaning that we see the universe with a vast amount of entropy today, all the particles matter energy. Um, that means it must have been extremely small in the deep, deep past of the universe. And how small has been pointed out by you know, Sir Roger Penrose, who is a guest of mine on my podcast here called the Into the Impossible podcast at the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination at UC San Diego. And he talked about this phenomena of how improbable the situation might have been at time equals zero in the inflationary uh, hypothesis, which, which really suggests the universe's expansion began with this uh, incomprehensible explosive type of, of new field which we've never discovered called the inflaton uh, and he does away with that he thinks that's he calls that fantasy 
uh, in his book, you know, Physics, Faith, Fantasy, and Fashion uh, from a few years back. He really talks derisively about it, and he conjectures another alternative model, which is not really uh, widely subscribed to, uh, that claims that there was no singular beginning of the universe, nor was there uh, a cycle of collapses and expansions, but rather the universe uh, evolves into a succession of what he calls eons, A-E-O-Ns, that, that proceed ever, you know, ever on- onward in both t- directions of what we would perceive as time, uh, forward and backward. And this is just a fascinating concept. Again, it's not really held in terms of physics orthodoxy, uh, so it's not in the, in the textbooks as we speak. But what is in the textbooks is enough to keep anybody busy and really understanding and refining what we try to do, unlike uh, Sir Roger Penrose, a theor- theoretical physicist, is you know we try to build machines, instrumentation to d- discover and divine what signals may be possible to observe and translate into into new scientific paradigms and parameters. And that's what I you know, have the privilege of being able to do here. Just a little aside, this issue has popped into my head a couple of times since we've been speaking. Uh, in terms of the scope of the universe, we have this thing called the observable universe. Uh, there's a few graphics that you can find, little uh, animations on YouTube mm-hmm. and, and other places that kind of attempt to show the scope of the observable universe you know, they'll start out with the Earth. You've probably seen these things over the years. Uh, and then they, they zoom out and they zoom yeah. out and they, you know, they get to the edge of the galaxy and they go mm-hmm. beyond that. And it just all gets incredibly mind blowing really, really quickly. Presumably by definition, we can say nothing about anything beyond the limits of our instrumentation and what we can see. And of course, what we can see, quote unquote, is a bit misleading because some people think, for example, when there's yet another media article about exoplanets being discovered mm-hmm. and, there, and a graphic appears uh, on your, you know, YouTube or sorry, on your social media feed, people think that's a picture of the exoplanet. It's not. Right. <laughs> it's some kind of yeah. artist impression of God knows what, Correct. you know, but right. so quite often seeing in terms of the distant universe means all sorts of other data is not visual. So just again, to repeat the question, presumably we can say nothing about anything beyond the limits of our instrumentation. Yeah, we talk about a, a few different notions of what is visible in the universe. And what we really speak about and what we can only speak about is what we can, in principle, observe. And so we believe we can only observe events after, as long as there were events that were taking place. And we can actually see things that are, you know, moving away from us faster than the speed of light, uh, provided that, you know, at very early times in the universe's past, the universe was much denser and closer separation between all entities in the universe. Um, and so it's possible sometimes you'll hear about, you know, an object is found receding faster than the speed of light, and there's nothing wrong with that, and there's no real paradox there if you get into the mathematics of, of relativity, as long as the universe is expanding. And I think... The interpretation that we have is that you can actually see things farther back in space, farther out in space, than the product of the velocity at which the universe is expanding, um, if you like, even if that's the speed of light, times the age of the universe. In other words, we see the sun as it is eight minutes ago, um, not as it is right now. The sun could literally disappear right now, and we wouldn't find out about it through light or through gravity effects. And for another eight minutes, because both light, gravity, 
uh, travel at the speed of light at, at, uh, at, um, propagate with that, those signals propagate with that velocity. So you might think naively you could only see out to the age of the universe, which is, uh, now known with qu- quite high precision to be 13 billion, 799 million years old, uh, that many light years. But actually you can see about three times that distance. It works out to be about, uh, 46 billion light years in any direction in the universe. That's as far back as you can possibly see. And so you're able to speculate on things that are, you know, uh, 46 billion light years away, but you're not allowed to speculate on something that's 46 billion light years plus one light year away. You won't be able to say anything about that until next year. And so um, there is this limitation imposed by the speed of light and the expansion of the universe. Um, uh, and nevertheless, we're able to describe phenomena that happened uh, at the very limits of that value. Just as we could say, you know, you could say something about waves reaching you on a boat from beyond the horizon. You know, we get waves here in Southern California that come all the way from Antarctica un- unimpeded. Uh, in fact, that's in the winter, we get very large waves in those kinds of directions. And the reason is we can see, we can sense things that happen beyond the horizon. We cannot see Antarctica from here. Um, and so, uh, information does travel from as long as there was an event, it's possible to observe the after effects of that event, including perhaps the aftermath of the Big Bang. What's potentially observable to some in the most exciting realm, which would be something that's not part of our universe, um, which is another universe. And this is the so-called multiverse paradigm which suggests that the multiverse is the paradigm that just as there's many planets and stars and galaxies, millions and trillions of them perhaps each, uh, there are perhaps trillions or trillions upon trillions or perhaps uh, a Google to the fifth power uh, universes in what's called the multiverse, each with its own laws of nature, each with its own particle zoo of different particles as we have protons, they may have you know, croutons or something uh, in other <laughs> universes. And, and those universes, you know, I'm interviewing you for my podcast and you're the author, uh, you know. So I, it, it's magical and delightful to think about these things. But I always like to ask the question, not only is there an observable consequence of them, but in keeping with the great philosopher Karl Popper, you know, can you not prove a theory? Because that's not really what we do. We don't prove theories. It's more that we disprove other theories. And what's so interesting about the alternative models like the steady state universe, the, uh, the, the universe of Roger Penrose, the cyclic type of universe, those can be disproven. They can't really be proven. And uh, concomitantly, this ignition phenomenon of the Big Bang, namely this inflationary universe, can be, could be proven but not disproven in a sense. <laughs> So it's a very interesting philosophical conundrum to be in, that you may never be able to prove that there is a multiverse, but you may never be able to rule it out either. And then what do you do in that case? You take a straw poll, uh, you know, do something on, on Twitter. It's it's very unusual situation that science finds itself in perhaps for the first time because uh, we've picked all the low-lying fruit and you really need the you know cherry picker at the top of the of the tree to get the very most interesting remaining fruit, or perhaps you'll never be able to reach it. And that's also delightful to think about. 
These questions are endlessly fascinating, but we do have limited time today, so we're going to have to move on. General question about science itself. We talked earlier about the fact that you know science, scientists are just human, politics, egos, uh, agendas, mm-hmm. these all come into play in science. To what extent do you think compartmentalization is an issue and a potential problem? That is to say, you know, you're a biologist, you're a chemist, you're a physicist, you're whatever yeah. it happens to be. But, and we've seen lots of scientists had their wings clipped when they've tried to sort of be multidisciplinary, when really it's all just science is just trying to understand the world around us. Um, so I'm just wondering if you think that's an issue that particularly as if people uh, study and then try and make science a career that, of course, you know, you need to specialize to an extent because it, that helps you focus and, and get results. But if you're a biologist that has theories about physics, that you may be sort of warned off this somewhat or may find it difficult to explore your ideas. So uh, for, for me, yeah. again, as a lay person, I found that to be an issue. Many times I've read books by scientists who have complained about this. They've just said, yeah, this is what I trained in. This is what I studied, but I've also studied this and I have ideas about this. And when I tried to present this paper or, you know, write this book or whatever, I got slapped down because, well, you're not a chemist, you know, or you're not whatever. Yeah, that is uh, the first time I've been asked that question. I think it's a very good one. And for me, it's a very important one because, you know, I supervise uh, eight students right now that are getting their PhDs. These are men and women from the best institutions uh, around the world. Uh, that's one of the great privileges of being a scientist at a major research university like UC San Diego. We get applicants from Thailand, Uganda, Saudi Arabia, Israel, all the places that would never even get along with each other. And you get this great diversity of of talent and different training and so forth. And I like to say, well, you know, diversity of, of, you know, kind of within physics, men and women, different cultures, that's very important, but so is diversity of thought and not being siloed. And so I, I never impose upon people, you know, political, you know, overtones or whatever, but I do very much strongly have an opinion that they should not be siloed. Uh, the problem is when I encourage them to do things like break out of their silos and go see interdisciplinary kinds of talks, like we have, this Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination. And last night we did an event with Freeman Dyson and Greg Benford, and, and it was wonderful. And they're both writers and physicists. Um, and it's just wonderful to see the confluence of, of people and artists and, and historians and so forth from all different walks of life. And I definitely encourage my students to make, you know, to take advantage of that. Uh, the issue is, you know, to get your PhD, you really have to be laser focused for a period of several years. You know, sometimes it can be, you know, six years, seven years, even very rarely fewer than five years. And so the question of, you know, how do you divide your time when you can't even become an expert in your own uh, area of focus, which has to be very um, laser like, as I said. Uh, so do you even, you know, all the more so do you have time to study you know, well, how did, you know, discoveries in the diffraction theory of light affect, you know, pointillist art and, and you know, really break out of the box um, and then or learn philosophy? You hardly have time to learn the math. And it is an unfortunate uh, side effect. I do tell my students, you know, that they have to take a day off a week. They can't work seven days a week. And that day off should be used for, you know, nourishing the soul uh, that is their possession outside of the 
um, very intense, very quantitative world of physics that they have to study. It's important for their well-roundedness. I want them to be Renaissance men and women, and I want them to nourish their soul, as I said, uh, and I, I view that as my responsibility. And I, I try to set an example, but you're right. It's extremely difficult. And now, on the other hand, there are people you know, that, that have an agenda that's set out to overthrow hierarchies and paradigms, and I get numerous letters like that a week. You know, they've disproven Einstein, and here's why, or, you know, such and such a Nobel Prize winner, you know, is wrong, and here's why. Um, and I and I very rarely have been met with, uh, you know, after reviewing it or even spending a few minutes with their ideas, been impressed enough to want to continue researching. Because I think in those cases, the object is almost to not create new research, but to take down you know, and maybe perhaps gain some notoriety and fame, you know, what could make you more famous than proving the greatest intellect in the 20th century? Einstein was wrong. But, you know, someone like, um, like uh, Boltzmann, Ludwig Boltzmann was arguably, you know, just as great a genius and lived in the 1800s. Uh, you know, I'm sure he might have made some mistakes too, but I never get papers that say, you know, Max, James Clerk Maxwell was wrong, <laughs> you know. Uh, so it's, 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 I always look at the motive of people and why they want to do that. Um, so you have to be careful. You have to have enough uh, legitimate work done, you know, just sitting, sitting down, understanding the basics, the orthodox laws of physics before you can try to break the mold and do something new, uh, and create something new. And it's not a matter of waiting your turn. It's about knowing what's been done before you and not being arrogant to think that you're going to, you know, create something ab initio from nothing because that's extremely rare. And as, you know, Isaac Newton once said, you know, if he saw further, it was because he stood on the shoulders of giants. Uh, some say that was derisively said, but but nevertheless, this, the sentiment is all that matters. You do have to learn from the from the old ones, and in fact, you know maybe the last thing, one of the last things I want to say is, the word scientist in Russian loosely translates into you know a person who was taught, you know, which really says that a scientist should endeavor to be a teacher and to be a student, and I think you know that's the one kind of power that that I've tried to impress upon uh, both improvement in myself and for my students too. Okay, well, a bit of a uh, Hydra-headed point here, a few things going on in this question to you, this collection of ideas. Uh, I want to get your thoughts, and you've already said something about this, but um, as to how science is presented and published for you know wider interpretation, public consumption, also how it's interpreted by the media, because sometimes this is by science correspondents who may um, have some training and education in the relevant area, Sometimes it's not. There's also the feeling sometimes that scientists themselves, now you're definitely an exception to this, but particularly historically that scientists have not been the best communicators with regard to those outside their field, the general public in particular, or the media. Uh, this is something I think is changing for the better, for sure. Uh, but they've been perceived by some lay people as condescending and, and patronizing and that science can then become distant and irrelevant as far as people's everyday lives are concerned, even though, of course, many of the wonders of the modern world that surround us every day are direct or indirect results of science. And there's also the issue of some kind of atavistic anti-science backlash going on. Um, you cite a shocking study in your book, actually, a 2014 study, that a quarter of people polled in this particular study in the USA and a third in the EU, which I was amazed by, uh, are not aware that the Earth revolves around the sun. So I think that how 
how science is disseminated out into the public arena is incredibly important and people's uh, the public's perceptions of science and scientists can be really crucial yeah absolutely i think you know there's an obligation that scientists have most of us our salaries are paid for in some way or another by the public and yet we treat our data and our findings uh, as so you know kind of sophisticated that only the greatest minds in history, aka us, can understand them. And certainly, it's true that um, you know they can be very complex. But as as uh, has been said, you know, if you can't explain what you do to your grandfather, then you're not a very good uh, scientist because you, uh, you're certainly not a good communicator. You may be completely incommunicative for that matter, and still be able to create new things in physics. It, w- it was said of of, of Paul Dirac that he never used uh, two words when none would do. Uh, so it's not unusual <laughs> to <laughs> to uh, have scientists that are just you know painfully introverted. That is a true stereotype. But I think the majority of us, we want to share our results. We want to and we need to communicate them better. And yet it's almost looked down upon if you write a popular book or you know make make outreach and education a very big priority, you know, compared to research and funding and the kind of day-to-day basis. So I think the incentivization system needs to be reconfigured so that scientists who, um, you know, maybe you don't want to make it obligatory, but you do want to make it a component that, you know, interacting with the people that pay your salary. I mean, very few other places besides academia have so little accountability. I mean, once you're tenured, uh, you basically can't get fired except for, you know, extreme egregious you know, violations and, and uh, proprietary, you know, propriety behavior, um, uh, committing crimes, even some crimes are not sufficient to justify, um, you know, kind of re- redaction of tenure. So <clears throat> I think um, the uh, authority that we have is kind of unmatched and the accountability is also unmatched or the lack of accountability. And, you know, for scientists, especially since we have so much amazing content uh, to put out, I think it is incumbent upon us to do so and to repay the debt that we have both to the people that taught us and espouse things things for us to to benefit from. Uh, One of the earliest influences on me, as I said, was Isaac Asimov and Carl Sagan and later, you know, folks like Jill, uh, Jane Goodall. Uh, these are great expositors of science and the practice of being a science that sparked this nascent flame of interest in me as a young boy. What I hope to do is, by my book, maybe spark the excitement in another young uh, boy or girl uh, to want to become an astronomer and become a scientist and, and see the great privilege in doing so. And so, yeah, I think it's right. We do need to become uh, put more of a focus on it and figure a way to incentivize it for scientists to to um, to to you know gently be held to to that standard. Well, in that light, what you now have in bookshops is something that you certainly didn't have in decades gone by, which is a popular science section. Uh, partic- yeah. Particularly when it comes to quantum physics, there's, quantum physics, there's so much out there, and there are pros and cons with this. Of course, uh, you mentioned Stephen Hawking earlier. He and figures like Richard Dawkins, for example, uh, their books sell in the millions. And, you know, they, they have advertisements for them on billboards, on the side of buses and trains. And they're incredibly influential. I take some issue with Dawkins because of his social Darwinism 
idea and this whole competitive thing, which I think actually spills over into science itself. But nonetheless, the influence is there, you know, good or bad. It's definitely having an effect. Mm, it absolutely is. I think people are, um, you know, just fascinated and especially, you know, beneficial to me or this fascination with cosmology. And I think, you know, part of the gestalt that's causing this is the world's weariness with politics. I think it's almost become inescapable, at least in America, uh, to to have a, you know, kind of no politics zone is basically impossible, even, you know, sporting events. But, you know, absent, say, climate change or, you know, abortion debates or things like that, there there are very few areas of science that are politicized or, or can be politicized. You know, as I always say, there's no Democratic constellation. There's no uh, there's no Republican uh, planetary system. And so uh, that that's something that's deeply needed in humanity. Politics are very important. Um, you know, mankind is a political animal in some sense, and that's one of the unique traits of our civilization. But on the other hand, we need a politics-free zone too in order to grow and to think about what makes these political structures worth having, you know, defending the culture as, you know, science should be seen as part of our culture. And that's what's so lovely and delightful about astronomy, as I say in particular, that it's something that everyone can do. Everyone can look up at the stars and the moon and, and even the planets, even with their naked eye, and, and think about what is beyond the limits of what they can see with their eyes and what they can see instead with their mind's eye, with their mind. And I think that's what's so delightful about what I get to do. We're just closing point. Brian, on your website, uh, you share a video uh, yourself in conversation with Deepak Chopra, Chopra. I'm afraid I'm not quite sure how to pronounce his name. Chopra. 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 Yeah. Okay, great. So, mm -hmm. and that makes me think about what I said earlier about science for some people feeling distant and irrelevant and questions of meaning and purpose. A lot of scientists run scared from for obvious mm -hmm. reasons because it's seen as inherently non-scientific. <laughs> but if there are any implications for science that, that have meaning for everyday lives, Anderson, this is not to invoke this, you know, the specter of God and try and let God in by the back door. But if there's anything that science, particularly the big picture science that you're engaged in, that can speak to the big existential questions, then that would be would be so wonderful if that could be communicated to us for the benefit of humanity. Because so many of the scientists and scientific writers, uh, you know, that, as you mentioned, Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke, and Carl Sagan, they were thinking in this big picture way as well. It wasn't just narrowly focused on textbooks and analyzing data. It's like, what does this mean for our species, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I found that, you know, in contradistinction, so, you know, to, to many of the theoretical physicists, cosmologists, et cetera, that write books uh, like Stephen Hawking and Brian Greene and Carl Sagan, uh, that they kind of come to it with the, yeah, with the Dawkins like perspective, Neil deGrasse Tyson, et cetera, that, you know, kind of religion has this real kind of fairy tale problem and, and it's just a bunch of nonsense. But I, you know, I do feel like it's important to engage people that, you know, I always say, um, you know, uh, most authors would trade, you know, uh, one, uh, one reader a hundred years from now than a hundred readers one year from now. I, I know I feel that way. I mean, I hope my book, is read in a long period of time, maybe not a hundred years, but I hope that Stephen Hawking's books aren't because I think if they still are, they'll be so out of date and science will have proceeded so much. It'll be like reading about, you know, Ptolemy and epicycles, you know, a couple hundred years after Copernicus. And, and I do feel like this, 
uh, is one of the benefits of cosmology and that we are learning more and more every day. But as I said earlier, you know, the, to say that we are free from dogma, but only religious people are, are, are dogmatic, I think that belies the actual truth that actually scientists operate under uh, spheres of influence, prejudices, etc., many of whom are atheists, uh, as I, as I, you know, kind of discussed in a video I did for this, uh, Prager University, which has gotten about three and plus million views, <clears throat> that, you know, there is almost a leap of faith that it takes to, to be a diehard believer in some of these cosmological dogmas. And I don't think it's inherently scientific to, I don't think it's bad to have a dogma, but to be completely ignorant of these biases. And I talk about several of them in my, in my book, especially the authority bias that comes from having an institution like the Nobel Prize, uh, that these are, these are dangerous and they're pernicious and we need to just be aware of them. Like any other bias we may have against, you know, very, uh, very destructive biases against races or, or genders or discriminatory practices. We need to be aware of those. And we also need to be aware of our biases as scientists as well. Brian, sorry we couldn't get into the Nobel Prize today, maybe some other time, but today we've been talking about your book, Losing the Nobel Prize, a story of cosmology, ambition, and the perils of science's highest honor. That's available everywhere. Uh, perhaps you'd like to share details of your website, podcast, anything else you're working on, or anything else you'd like to put out there. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, my website is briankeating.com. My uh, Twitter handle is Dr. Dr. Brian Keating. And uh, those are my primary ways of, of getting in touch with me. I have a podcast that we run through the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination on my YouTube channel. There's a link from there. We have interviews with Nobel laureates, Pulitzer Prize winners, uh, Sir Roger Penrose, Freeman Dyson, and many, many other people, interesting intellects, authors, etc., and artists. And that's part of our mission to create these, these Renaissance men and women, uh, not just here in the University of California, but, but throughout the world. I, I hope your listeners will engage with us on those different channels. Wonderful. Well, Brian, once again, thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you, Greg. It was my pleasure. Thank you.